Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we start, a quick shout out to Alexi, who just became a new patron over on Patreon. <laughs> Thank you. And we hope that you enjoy the bonus episodes. Yes. And speaking of bonus episodes, <laughs> if you listened to the bonus April Fool's episode that came out perhaps unsurprisingly on April 1st, you may have thought that I was screaming into a gym teacher's megaphone for the entirety. Uh, that was not the case, but unfortunately something happened while I was editing and my sound file was affected. I, maybe because we were talking about cursed and haunted objects. My best guess is a ghost got into the file. Anyway, I truly apologize for the lousy sound quality folks, but woof. All right. That's it for and housekeeping. And I was haunted by ums. <laughs> um, I was very ummy in that episode. Look, uh, my, a- I'm April is uh, the cruelest month. So who said yeah. that? It was T.S. Eliot in the Wasteland. Thank you. Well, that's it for housekeeping and poetry <laughs> what corner. A, so. What a weird. I just <laughs> What a flex. No, just like people are going to think that you edited a long period of silence, but I just like fired. You know, you really off. had it right, right there. <laughs> Let's get into this episode, shall we? Let's. So this is a sponsored topic, uh, which are among the best topics. Yeah, because um, we didn't have and, to think of them. Well, no. And this is also <laughs> one that, uh, so this is courtesy of listener Kate. Thanks, who Kate. requested a follow-up of sorts to episode 99, in which we talked about people of size. Um, And so this is, this is so great. I just love that we got this, this request. Yeah, yeah. Um, Definitely. And so in that episode, we talked mostly about the perception of the female body or sort of the coded femme body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, since we looked at a lot of art. Um, but, uh, that really was like the product of, uh, some bias, both in terms of me the- putting together <laughs> the script and also just sort of like what was readily available in talking mm-hmm. about, um, people of size. But, what about the fellas? Let's hear it for the lads. Um, lads, lads, lads. <laughs> so the the prompt we received uh, from listener Kate uh, asked, and, you know, we're paraphrasing here. How does perception of muscularity, um, so in men, but also in women, uh, vary across time and space? Beyond pure aesthetics, is positive perception of strength as distinct from muscle in men a human universal? Or have there been other trends in male status that go in the other direction? So we've decided to work with a couple of different meanings of the idea of size, and that's the continuum between muscularity and fatness. So we'll examine the perceptions of both of these things, mostly in the male body, from different places and times in this episode. 
And so I'm going to read a little bit from um, a 2012 publication from the University of Kansas. Christopher E. Forth, the Howard Chair of Humanities and Western Civilization and history professor at KU. At least as of 2012. As of 2012. Traces some current perceptions of fat to those of ancient Greeks, Romans, and Hebrews, among others, and explores how these have evolved. Forth is the author of Fat, a cultural history of the stuff of life, which is summarized thusly on goodreads.com. (laughs) <laughs> oh, uh, an ahem within an ahem. <laughs> yes. Fat. Such a little word evokes big responses. While fat describes the size and shape of bodies, their appearance, our negative reactions to corpulence also depend on something tangible and tactile. As this book argues, there is more to fat than meets the eye. Fat. A Cultural History of the Stuff of Life offers reflections on how fat has been perceived and imagined in the West since antiquity, featuring fascinating historical accounts as well as philosophical, religious, and cultural analyses, including discussions of status, gender, and race. The book digs deep into the past for the roots of our current notions and prejudices. Two central themes emerge, how we have perceived and imagined corpulent bodies over the centuries and how fat as a substance, as well as a description of body size, has been associated with vitality and fertility, as well as perceptions of animality. By exploring the complex ways in which fat, fatness, and fattening have been perceived over time, this book provides rich insights into the stuff our stereotypes are made of. But heavily biased towards the West. I mean, as, as that well, description said, but just... And yeah. as Christopher E. Forth's title <laughs> suggests. Yes. Uh, so Forth says, quote, It's a common misconception that if we fear fat today, there must have been a time when fatness was accepted and even celebrated without qualification. Some claim this time was before the 1920s, and others point to the 19th century, and still others go back to the Middle Ages. The fact is, there never really was a time when Western societies viewed fat as entirely good or entirely bad. It has always been viewed with ambivalence. As a substance, fat is itself ambiguous. It melts into oil, penetrates the body, and makes us overindulge, but it also performs all manner of useful functions that we cannot live without, he says. What has changed over time is the intensity with which different societies have viewed fat inside the body. Combing through ancient Greek, Hebrew, and Roman texts, fourth points to references that both celebrate fat as signs of richness, fertility, and increase, and also warn that too much fat can lead to rot and ruin. Ancient Hebrew words for the quality of fat greasiness, describe fertile qualities of soil and warn that overly rich or fat soils would be infertile. Some scholars suggest that the phrase land flowing with milk and honey more accurately translates as land flowing with fat and honey. Mm -hmm. Uh, This reminded me, um, I'm reading, I'm only, you know, like 50 pages in, but I'm reading uh, a cool new book by Herman Ponser called Burn. New research blows the lid off how we really burn calories, lose weight, and stay healthy, which sounds like a diet book, but it it's does. really not. It's yeah, it really I was kind of surprised by the title actually, but it's a book on really solid research into human metabolism. Herman Ponser is a well-documented researcher on both um 
human hunter-gatherer metabolism, human metabolism in general, and also great ape metabolism. Because the way that we and other great apes, the way our metabolism has evolved is much, much slower than almost all other mammals. And so it's, it's kind of interesting that... Our metabolism is slower or the evolution of our metabolism has happened? No, our slowly. actual metabolism. Oh, okay. Yeah. And a lot of that, in especially in humans, has to do with fueling our big old brains. But so, so this book is so far really, really interesting. And hmm. um, I learned while reading in the car the other day. Um, <gasps> no, the car was parked. I was waiting oh. in the car. Okay. So I and just I, like got nauseated. Just no, 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 no. I sentence. can't. Yeah. I can't read in the car when it's moving. No, I was waiting. And uh, I learned that after an especially fatty meal, the the way that fat is transported out of the food that you eat and sort of into your body for you know, reuse as energy um, is through your bloodstream. And essentially your blood can turn sort of a kind of milky color because of the, the fat being absorbed from what you've eaten, I, which, yeah, it's a really interesting kind of really oh. visceral fact. I mean, literally visceral fact. And I wanted to pass that on. I, I didn't know. I didn't know it would make you make that face, but I guess I kind of suspected. So there's that. I recommend that book. It just came out. It's really good. Anyway, tell me about St. Augustine. (laughs) (laughs) Not the town in Florida. Um, And not the song by Blood Orange. I'll send it to you later. Thanks. (laughs) St. Augustine counseled chubby patrons worried about their heavenly appearance, that their bodily fat would be redistributed once in heaven, giving them a perfectly proportioned body suitable for eternity. (laughs) Silly. This was mostly rich people worried about this. <laughs> that was um, my um, paraphrasing. <laughs> um, so most ordinary citizens were like physically active and had neither an abundance of idle time nor food supplies. Yeah, they probably weren't also, thinking about this. And it's probably, I would, I would wager that it was more the former. Where it's just like, I've got other stuff to yeah, worry I about. Bet. I gotta like live. Like, like, let me, let me get there first yeah. and then I'll worry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Greeks and Romans viewed fat as the lot of slaves or foreigners. Forth says that it, that this provides an early link between fatness and racism that lingers in Western societies today. Great. Yeah. Uh, in Africa and India, for example, fatness could be admired. Many Africans uh, viewed yes, stored a, fat as like a generalization. Many, many people in this very large continent mm-hmm. viewed stored fat as a sign of fertility. And Indians from in South Asia, Asia. Um, another large part of the world, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a subcontinent, mm. um, considered it a sign of prosperity. Yet Greeks and Romans often found fat adults grotesque, especially if they linked fatness to lack of self-control. Beauty in the classical world was all about self-control and morality, qualities that foreigners lacked. Rude. Uh, by the early modern era, European colonists took the concepts of beauty and elite a step further. To be properly elite, to be apart from those considered foreign, was to be lean and muscular and white. Yep. Cool. Cool. Cool, cool take. So let's <laughs> um, move swiftly onward and expand our horizons. Moving away from the European world for a bit, although we'll be back, to talk Uh. about a context where bulk and strength are key, the sport of sumo. Hmm. 
Sumo can be traced back to ancient Shinto rituals in Japan to ensure a bountiful harvest and honor the spirits known as kami. In modern times, the canopy over the sumo ring called the dojo, not dojo, which I think the the words are related, but dojo, Mm. is reminiscent of a Shinto shrine. The officiator is dressed in garb very similar to that of a Shinto priest, and the throwing of salt before a bout is believed to purify the ring. So I got some of this from the USA Pro Sport Association of Sumo uh, for their webpage. You didn't go to like their headquarters and be like. (laughs) Well, I meant I didn't go to like the Japanese association's page (laughs) because it was less accessible to me. Uh, So it's not the most. um, Well, I'll just. Here we go. Some people think sumo wrestlers are out of shape and unhealthy, but in fact, most elite sumo wrestlers have immense power, speed, balance, and flexibility from hours of daily training. They also support their athletic workouts with the traditional Japanese sumo staple of chanko nabe. I think nabe just means broth or soup. Um, So this is a special kind of soup. As an idea of what a sumo wrestler's body composition is like, four-time world champion Biamba, a Mongolian wrestler who passed away last year, weighed in at 350 pounds, but had a body fat ratio of 11%, which is quite low. And the average human body fat percentage, not of athletes or fitness pros, just of regular folks, is 18 to 24% for men and 25 to 31% for women. So to be 350 pounds with a, a body fat ratio of 11% means that you are quite muscular. So let's get back to that soup. Chankonabe is full of nutrient-dense proteins and vegetables. After intense workouts, pro sumo wrestlers down bowls of chanko to replenish energy lost from hours of training. The warm broth and fresh vegetables aid in assimilation and absorption of nutrients, and the high protein content is for rebuilding muscles worn down during training. They train all day, every day, pretty much nonstop. Chankonabe dishes consist of a rich broth flavored with fish stock, miso, soy sauce, or other Japanese condiments. Protein comes from meat, chicken, fish, or tofu. Almost any vegetable works well in chankonabe. Popular choices including cabbage, onions, green onions, carrots, mushrooms, daikon radish, burdock root, and more. Sounds delicious. Before they start eating lunch, which is the first meal of the day, pro sumo wrestlers train intensely all morning. This includes plenty of stretching and calisthenics, as well as hundreds of shiko, or leg lifts, warm-ups, as well as dozens of matches. As in bouts. Like they... Yeah. Yeah. As after several hours of nonstop movement, a sumo wrestler may lose 10 or 15 pounds of sweat. Just like straight up water weight, 10 to 15 pounds. It's, it's a really intensive training schedule. Most people are surprised by the intensity of the training and of how like muscular, yeah, like Amber, and of how muscular, fast, flexible, and powerful most pro sumo wrestlers are. The serious training continues the entire year with few breaks as the sumo tournaments occur every other month, so there really isn't an off season. However, big and bulky wrestlers were not considered the norm. Wrestlers in this tradition historically had leaner builds. So if you go to the Wikipedia entry for sumo, you'll see some photos from the late 1800s, as well as some paintings from a couple decades earlier that show sumo wrestlers looking a bit less massive than in modern photos from the sport. So I thought that was really interesting. I, I knew relatively little about sumo. I've seen, you know, pictures of modern sumo wrestlers, but that's really interesting. And I knew a a little bit about the intensiveness of the training, but 
that's just amazing. Um, and as is my want now, we're going to take the idea of sports, strength, and athleticism and shove it back as far into the past as we can. And it turns out there's a name for that, human athletic paleobiology. And this is wow. like really in, in the sweet spot of my current interests. So I'm going to really get get nerdy. I'm going to nerd Please. all the way out. I'm Please. very excited. Okay. I'm, I'm still reeling from 10 to 15 pounds. Pounds of sweat. sweat. Yeah. I just... It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of sweat. Also, how yeah. do they measure it? Well, I guess they just measure the athlete. You just wait. You just <laughs> Never mind. Weigh, weigh yourself. <laughs> I had a moment like of, like sweat in cup. I don't know. Never mind. What? No, no, no. That's not no, also no, what? I, just, the, I, had, I know. Um, it was a dumb thought. I had it. It's gone now. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I know something about this because I own a faux leather skirt. Is that a sweaty so. garment? It's a very sweaty okay. garment. I was checking that that's where you were going with that. Okay. Well- um, so yeah, I'm basically great. elite athlete over here. Yeah. Walking to Metro in a faux leather skirt. Okay. Well, we're, we're skirting the issue. Let's continue. <laughs> hey. hey, so this comes from an article in Discover Magazine, which starts out by talking about the Schoeningen Spears, thought to have been made about 300,000 years ago by either Neanderthals or Homo heidelbergensis, depending on whom you ask. Like so, if you ask a Neanderthal, they'll say like, oh, it was Homo heidelbergensis. Homo, Homo heidelbergensis was like, not me. <laughs> um, yeah, let's, let's leave that? it at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, this is a period of time where one species, the, both species would have been around, but if it was Neanderthals, it would have been Neanderthals without the full set of morphological characteristics that really define like classic Neanderthal. So they were still sort of evolving from whatever that common ancestor was. And Homo heidelbergensis was also around. So it's unclear who actually oh, made them. This is and now some, like the second time during this episode where I feel like I need to lay down. Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, if you ask some researchers, they'll say Neanderthal. Some researchers will say Heidelbergensis. Anyway, not as important. Uh, the wooden artifacts measure about seven feet long and resemble oversized broomsticks with sharpened tips. One might argue, spears. <laughs> They're fairly hefty, and so were initially thought to only have been used as thrusting weapons. But researcher Anamika Milks suggests that they were used as throwing spears, and that Paleolithic hunters were strong enough to use them as such. But just how fast and how far could these ancient weapons soar? Milks wanted the answers, so she commissioned a woodworker to carve replicas from dense spruce, which is the material that the Schoeningen spears are made from. But to do the experiment right, Milks needed study participants who could throw like their lives depended on it. Oh, <laughs> what? Now I'm well, going to put like, them all on an island. I mean, that would be the then, ideal situation, but not quite. Oh, so no, it's like, like, like their lives depend on As not, if, yes. Not because. No, no. Not. <laughs> it's like the, a not a most dangerous game situation. <laughs> yeah, it was like not the new TV franchise that I'm now pitching. Um, I mean, it's, it is basically naked and afraid. Uh, plus spear. <laughs> Clothed and perplexed. <laughs> yeah, that is what this study turns out to have been because put a spear into the hands of most people today and they'd go hungry. 
Earlier studies tested inexperienced throwers, sometimes the scientists themselves, and mm. concluded that the spears could only sail a couple of dozen feet, feebly. As part of research published in 2018 in Scientific Reports, Milks put six javelin athletes to the test. They tra- <laughs> it's like, Yeah, yes, do that. The trained throwers launched Schoenigan spear replicas over 35 miles per hour and more than 80 feet. By using athletes as study subjects, Milks added fresh data to an old debate. Scholars have long argued that Neanderthal weapons were too hefty to hurl and therefore had to be thrust directly into prey. Compared with throwing from afar, this jabbing technique would have been high risk, low return. But throwing would have been much more effective. That said, though, Neanderthals do have, like in the fossil record, the skeletons do have a lot of injuries that suggest that they got pretty banged up when they were hunting. So they had a lot of a lot of scientists among them (laughs) being like, I got this. (laughs) Milks is not the only scientist enlisting athletes to answer questions about human evolution. The emerging line of research offers huge potential in terms of looking into and exploring our evolutionary journey. And that's a quote from Danny Longman, a physiologist at Lochbra. Oh, I don't know. Lochbra? Lochbra. University in the UK. Naming the approach human athletic paleobiology in a 2020 paper in the Yearbook of Physical Anthropology. Have a great summer. (laughs) Love you like a scientist. (laughs) Longman and colleagues (laughs) outlined ways that has shed new light on the human species and could continue to do so. So this is so interesting to me because it's very much in the sweet spot of my own personal research interest in the capabilities of the human body. So Amber, thank you for bearing with me. I, I promise I won't lead you all down my rabbit holes of Scottish strongman and elite CrossFit YouTube videos, although they're fun to watch. But the way that humans can alter their musculature and bone structure, like you can you can sculpt the human body, and how the skeleton can tell us about physical activity in the past has always fascinated me. So this is like, mm. About a decade ago, article co-author Jay Stock started analyzing athletes, Specifically, CT scans of their bones. An anthropology professor, then at the University of Cambridge and now at the University of Western Ontario, Stock wanted to identify skeletal features related to exercise, which he could also find on ancient bones. This could help clarify the physical demands of past societies, how much running, throwing, and hauling the average person did thousands of years ago or more. At the time, it was known that intense, repeated actions alter bone properties, such as thickness, shape, and density. When you habitually work a bone in a certain manner, it toughens up to counteract the strains. Like when you work the muscles that attach to the bone, you're not, yeah, when you subject bones to strain. The pattern of my pelvis isn't like super, super thick because I just sit all day. (laughs) I mean, cannot confirm or deny. The pattern of bone alteration across the skeleton depends on the particular activities undertaken. But to understand these patterns, Stock needed a key, measurements of bone subjected to known exercise regimens. A skeleton key? A skeleton key! In preliminary studies, Stock and collaborator Colin Shaw found consistent skeletal differences between university swimmers, runners, cricketers, and field hockey players. 
They published a paper in 2013, which we will link to in the show notes, in the Journal of Human Evolution that reported similarities between bones of modern swimmers and late 1800s Andaman Islanders who canoed and swam to forage their meals. And the shins of Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, between 40,000 and 120,000 years old, appeared even more reinforced than those of cross-country athletes who've run 80 to 100 miles per week since adolescence. So they were very highly mobile, is the takeaway there. More recently, the approach revealed the hard work of Central Europe's early farming women. It seems their daily grind... Rise and grind, ladies. Rise and grind, but like literally grind because we need flour. 2,000 to 7,000 years ago was as strenuous as the training of elite female athletes today. For a 2017 Science Advances study, Stock's then-graduate student, Alison Murray, compared bone strength among 30 Neolithic women and present-day runners, soccer players, rowers, and non-athletes. Gotta have a control. On (laughs) average, the farmer's lower leg bones were similar to today's non-athletes, suggesting that the past women generally stuck close to home. But, says Murray, now an anthropologist at the University of Victoria in Canada, quote, the big finding was, whoa, when you look at their arms, they were much stronger than even the rowers, end quote. Those rowers trained up to 21 hours each week, pulling strokes with force over six times their body weight. Yet the farming women developed heartier upper arms, likely from planting and harvesting crops, grinding grain and crafting pottery. And Murray says, quote, low intensity, but just over and over activity, end quote. Oh, so it's going to be like my forearms. Type, 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 like, type, 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 Yeah, type. they'll be like, oh, this person. You're going to Popeye, basically. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll leave it there. But the article continues with more examples. The effects of low intensity but repetitive activity over a lifetime is really interesting, especially if you think about maybe some applications for lifestyle and exercise shifts for people with limited mobility. Exercise and strength building don't have to come from intense, hard physical exertion, but can come from slow work over time. And I think about this a lot as someone with serious back issues that have affected my own mobility for years. And so I've become really, really interested in the idea of sort of separating out individual parts of the body and figuring out the best way to make them stronger. So let's take a quick ad break, talk about more feats of strength and maybe even Strengths of feet. Oh. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. 
Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back. And we're going to look at some examples of how people, okay, usually men, in the ancient world got shredded. We're going to be looking like Kikuli's horses. (laughs) Kikuli's horses. If you know anything about athletics in the ancient Greek world, it won't surprise you to learn that they were fanatical about physical fitness. Um, So Socrates allegedly wrote, No citizen has a right to be an amateur in the matter of physical training. What a disgrace it is for a man to grow old without ever seeing the beauty and strength of which his body is capable. Is attributed to Socrates. I didn't trace it back to original Greek sources. It's it's kind of a jerk thing for Socrates to say. I mean, I'm all about, you know, a polite appreciation of the the body in general, but like polite. maybe Yeah, like respectful. Excuse me. <laughs> Polite appreciation sounds like something that like wealthy men in the like twenties. I know it. I made it sound accidentally pervy, and I really didn't mean Super to. I meant, I meant like respectful um, appreciation of the capabilities of the human body, which is one thing. But Socrates is always depicted as kind of a short, tubby guy. So for him to be like, but I don't. What know. a disgrace! But I, I kind of like. I I no. I like his his radical body positivity be like that's Look fine. At what this can do yeah mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's how we got xanthropy <laughs> all right okay in a 2007 examination of chinese physical cultures author nigel b crowther found that might lifting- have been british, british i think he might be british <laughs> found that lifting weights, archery, weight throwing, tug of war, boxing, and a host of other activities were practiced by Chinese men in the ancient world. I'd like to disclose that this is from a listicle on barbend.com, which is like a a bodybuilding website, but they listed their sources and the sources are (laughs) legit. I have a, a full bibliography included in the comments. Cool. Yeah. Um, This is perhaps unsurprising, given the long history of Chinese martial arts. To display their strength, regional strongmen lifted rocks and metal objects, like heavy tripods and massive swords, overhead or with one hand. Like you do. One's ability to lift such objects was often linked to their fighting prowess, their virility, and as an indication of their family strength. Strength was not merely an object of vanity, but instead something of considerable societal importance. My family's so strong. Stone lifting was the primary way in which men competed in strength competitions, but it was not the only avenue open to those seeking to build or display their strength. During China's Warring States period, and that was 475-221-ish BCE, martial artists would take part in a single or two-man lift of a large three-legged cauldron called a deng. These could weigh upwards of several hundred pounds, and their irregular shape meant made lifting them all the more difficult. Moving on to ancient Egypt, uh, one of the most popular lifting techniques in ancient Egypt was sack swinging, which could be compared to the modern-day clean and jerk Olympic lift. Which Anna, you watch these in videos? I have seen them in videos. I have too. 
Okay, I wasn't sure if you were familiar, but in case some of our listeners are not familiar, a clean and jerk is a two-stage lift of something heavy. The two weights on the end of a bar, and the first lift is up to your shoulders, and then, so that's the clean, and then the jerk is when you push the weight up over your head. And you just scream. Yeah. Ah! Yep. yep. Every every day. My mm-hmm. dad works out. Mm-hmm. He's a solid Small, solid man. Yes. <laughs> Just a jacked little old guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's that's so, what I aspire to be. <laughs> to build their bodies and also as a form of competition, individuals would lift a sack of sand with one hand and keep it overhead for a period of time. Alongside these forms of weight training, we we know that gymnastics was a hugely popular form of training for soldiers and citizens alike. Just spring it all over the place. Yep. Using a series of body weight or calisthenics exercises, men and women would strengthen their muscles and improve their agility. And then you complete, you complete and dismount and go wee. And someone holds up a sign and it's like two reeds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Quickly line bread uh, loaf. Okay. <laughs> A similar tool for training was used in ancient India and not so ancient Europe and America, where it was adopted during the various health crazes of the late 1800s and early 1900s. Was it going like this? What? The like swivels? No. (laughs) Was it the swivels? (laughs) No. And it's, well, these, what you're about to describe are actually still in use today in bodybuilding gyms, apparently. Um... Indian clubs, heavily weighted wood. India, not like. (laughs) Okay, I. It's not. Thought it was like where you went. You went to the Indian club. No, no, no. This is not. That's what they called a gym. So Indian clubs. There you go. Heavily weighted wooden clubs shaped a bit like elongated bowling pins appear in early Buddhist and Jain writings. Their ancient past is best understood through Hindu texts like the Mahabharata, written between 400 BCE and 400 CE. (laughs) A range. In the, yeah, yeah, it took it took a while. It's a long book. I know. <laughs> In the text, Gadas, the heavy club precursors to Indian clubs, were mentioned at several points by the text's heroes and demons. Included among the Gada users was Vishnu, one of the most revered Hindu deities, and it's even said by some that Vishnu was responsible for forging the original Gada. Vishnu's association with the Gada meant that symbolically it became linked with power, destruction, and a certain amount of reverence. Thus, those who swung the Gada, or the Indian clubs, took the matter seriously. Also relevant was the god Hanuman, revered for his strength, and also sometimes referenced as the character the Monkey King, because his aspect is that of an ape. Why did you say it like that? I d- I don't know what that means. He looks like one. Yeah, he's he's okay. Yes, his aspect. Yeah, he's got a monkey face. Rude. No, um, no <laughs> he's got the actual face of a monkey. Oh, not like my high school anthropology teacher. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. <laughs> actual monkey in the same way that like Ganesh has the mm, head of an okay, elephant, okay. like actual okay. animal head okay. on body. Okay, great. Yeah. Good. That's not, that's better. Mm-hmm. A demigod praised for his devotion to Lord Rama, Hanuman is closely related to Indian clubs and Hindu texts and iconography, and is also linked with 
wrestling. Yeah. So this has been a lot of talk of strength and muscularity, and often these traits are thought of as signs of masculinity or virility, depending on time, place, and culture. But what about other depictions of the male body? Are there body shapes other than big and beefy that have been considered a desirable aesthetic? Of course. And this is from a 2017 article on artsy.com titled, and I, when I saw this in my Google search, I went, yay, thank you, internet. How art has depicted the ideal male body throughout history. And it's just a series of memes. No, but it is. It does include lots of uh, actual art pieces and then kind of breaks them down into, you know, why it's particularly relevant for a certain time period. In the history of masculinity, it is money rather than muscle that tends to be articulated. Class or status has been the determining factor in the defining of male exemplars. Be it in the East or West, the epitome, not the epitome, Anna, the epitome of a handsome man has generally been an idealized version of an upper-class individual, an archetype that has itself changed over time. Because of this, people in many cultures have confronted muscle, today more commonly understood as a symbol of virile masculinity, as a problem. For much of history, muscles have been seen as vulgar, meaty indicators of labor. Rather than strength, they have suggested oafishness or, at best, potentially deviant self-regard. Even today, we're not clear on whether muscle is an indication of health or narcissism, menace or manliness. And on women, they present a whole other set of problems, says this article. Not me. The ideal man, the gentleman, has no muscles because he does no physical work. He is also pale because he has not toiled in the sun, and he is tall because he is well-nourished. So this is sort of a different um, type of bigness, just like tall but willowy. Ah! But <laughs> just like this is other people of size, and so I'm I'm yeah. emphasizing emphasizing yes. here that the size could anyway. It's a type. I don't know why you're <laughs> very I'm defensive. On board. Okay, <laughs> it's a type that began to take shape in early 19th century Europe, in England in particular, and held sway until very recently. I don't I don't know how recently is it like the advent of dad bod? I don't know where are we. Despite the more developed physiques found in Tarzan or James Bond films, athleticism has been far less esteemed throughout history than a body formed by ease, alcohol, and cigarettes. According to the book Looking Good, Male Body Image in Modern America, in the late 19th and early 20th century, a big belly was considered attractive. It was so cool to be big, they had fat men's clubs. Not to be confused with Indian clubs. This one is a club you go to, not an object. Uh, this is where I texted you and was like, oh, the script is coming together. Because um, I found this. I love very this. Excited. I love this. To gain entry to a fat men's club. I don't I don't know if you're going to love it by the end. We'll see. Oh, no. Because it's that kind of a conspicuous consumption thing and like that. No. I know. To gain entry to a fat men's club, you had to be over 200 pounds to join, and there were many clubs across the country. An NPR article has this to say about one meeting in 1904. Quote, This village is full of bulbous and overhanging abdomens and double chins tonight, for the New England Fat Men's Club is in session at Hale's Tavern. End quote. You like my old-timey? I do, yeah. Um, from the aforementioned NPR article. 
1903, in a cheery local tavern tucked away in Wells River, Vermont, one of America's most successful fat men's clubs was launched. We're fat and we're making the most of it, was their mantra. Oh my God. I've got to be good natured. I can't fight and I can't run, was their motto. Members had to be at least 200 pounds, pay a $1 fee to enter, and learn a secret handshake and password. Twice a year, members gathered with meetings announced in advance to allow the men to stuff up in order to meet the minimum weight requirement. It's like wrestling. You got to get a bulk up or down, depending on your weight class. Daryl Leeworthy, a historian at the UK's Swansea University, says that fat men's clubs weren't just an East Coast phenomenon. Nevada, Utah, and Tennessee boasted versions as well. And he says the clubs weren't just venues to celebrate the joys of eating without concern and brag about one's girth. They were, essentially, networking events. Like fat networking, that sounds great. (laughs) Memphis Fat Men's Baseball Club had a reception committee replete with judges, ministers, and a rabbi. Walk into a bar. What did one do at a fat men's club gathering? Well, eat, of course, a lot. At its peak, the New England Fat Men's Club had 10,000 members, according to writer Polly Tafrates' brief history of the club for Upper Valley Life. The men would cram huge breakfasts into their bellies, then stumble outside and work up a sweat in a friendly Olympic-style competition showcasing strength and virility, leapfrog contests, broad jumps, and races. Okay, one of those things makes a lot less sense than the others. Is it races? No, like leapfrog contests? Like, why is that? Like, uh-huh. is that a sport too? Is this something? It's uh, it's showing how far you can jump over someone. But isn't, it's jumping over someone. It's just yeah. sort of. But that involves strength. You have to like uh, no, hoist yourself I'm not, up over. I'm not, <laughs> not disagreeing. It's just okay. like, you know, Olympic stuff. Like, you no, know. Olympic style. Jumping, just like Yeah. Races. Okay. It's very. Throwing some stuff. Leapfrog. <laughs> Look, poodle clipping used to be an Olympic sport. So really, yep. Oh, Poetry writing was too. I mean, yeah. Well, bring equally difficult. Okay, yeah. Bring them both back. The exertion also served to jumpstart appetite for the indulgent dinner spread that awaited members at sundown. It was a ridiculous amount of food. Quote. One nine-course menu included oyster cocktail, cream of chicken soup, boiled snapper, filet of beef with mushrooms, roast chicken, roast suckling pig, shrimp salad, steamed fruit pudding with brandy sauce, assorted cakes, cheese, and ice cream, followed by coffee and cigars. End quote. It sounds jolly. I don't know. I kind of dig it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let's uh, take a moment to digest all that while we take one more quick ad break and then wrap up with a trip to another universe. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion.
Hey, fans of APN Podcasts. We've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. We're back. And listeners, I hear you thinking, another universe? Is this about to get weird? Well, really, like the only <laughs> weird thing, <laughs> the only weird thing about this is that I'm the one who suggested this uh, to be added to the script. And I know almost nothing about the Marvel comics <laughs> universe. Yes, rhymes with the ice cream cakes. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> new Marvel character, Fudgy the Whale. That's a, that's a cake. Mm. so um this comes to us from a blog entry by megan m um aka the great lakes ethno historian and it's a really interesting way to think about how morphology body shape and size in fiction and fantasy can teach us about morphology in real life see why i suggested it people people were like oh okay okay fine fine making a point (laughs) something fun (laughs) Making a point with it. Yeah. So who's got the biggest body in the MCU? I don't actually know, but Anna says here, the Incredible Hulk. I also wrote, if there's someone bigger and you nerds are yelling at your podcatchers right now, please don't at me. I yeah, do not care. Don't, tell me. <laughs> I don't, don't care. care. I don't care. Um, so uh, Megan M., who uh, does care, writes mm-hmm. in Anthroquote. In anthropology, we have to talk about species as both a living biological classification and as a fossil classification. And because we study human evolution, we, in fact, transition between the two. This can be really hard for students to grapple with. For example, if I see a male gorilla and a female gorilla, I can see quite clearly that we have two members of the same species, but they have great sexual dimorphism. Um, <laughs> I think I think that's a, a, a quantitative. It's great. <laughs> okay, I'm loving Superb. this sexual dimorphism here. <laughs> um, so mm. males and females look very different in this species. Their skulls make these differences even more obvious. Human males and females are different as well, but not nearly so much as gorillas. And if you think about the diversity within one sex of our species. Uh, the examples Megan gives here are NBA, NBA player Yao Ming versus actor David Spade. You can imagine a lot of variability in those skeletons. Yao Ming is tall and he works out a lot. He will have larger bones with larger muscle attachments. David Spade is portable. <laughs> Her words. I love that. Uh, so imagine you find a fossil hominid. You only have 25% of the skeleton. Then you find another skeleton at a nearby locale. You have 25% of that fossil also, but it's not necessarily the same bone fragments. How do you tell if they are members of the same species or members of closely related species? Maybe they look very different, but in fact represent one species with a lot of variability, a Yao and a David. The point is, it is hard for a student to understand that when a paleontologist says species, it might not be exactly the same thing as a biological species, because the student thinks that they already know what a species is. And when I try to explain that 
the characteristics we use to differentiate fossil species from one another are salient to us as we look at their skulls, but may have had no relevance to those living creatures, they have a tough time wrapping their brains around that. They want facts. They want boundaries. They want to be able to memorize it and move on. Yeah, it's tough because it's like, what are the categories? What do I put this in? How do I define this thing? And you're like, well, it may be this, but we don't know. And I understand how that can be incredibly frustrating because I'm frustrated by it. I just, I'm very comfortable with ambiguity. (laughs) No, I'm comfortable with the ambiguity existing. It's just sort of, I have many questions and I'm an impatient person. Yeah, I'm just like, cool. Yeah. Cool. So... Uh, Megan continues. And this is where I think those X-Men could really come in handy. Is he an X-Man? He's not an X-Man. No, the Hulk is not. The X-Men. She, so she goes on to talk about the X-Men and then also the Hulk. Okay. Both of those <laughs> are within the Marvel Universe. Okay. <laughs> Did you a see like my just brain went, like grind to a halt? <laughs> I'm just like, there are so few things that I know. No, about I know. And I had popular to, I, media I, that I... Okay. Full disclosure, I while writing this script, I googled, are the X-Men DC or Marvel? Well, oh, I knew they were Marvel because I recently watched X-Men First Class. <laughs> oh, I saw that Again. on a plane a while ago. Cool. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> recently, some attorneys for Marvel uh, successfully won cases against the U.S. government, arguing that all Marvel action figures represent toys, not dolls. This means they are not representing only human beings and therefore have half the tax to import. Yeah, there it is. Now, we all know that the X-Men are, in fact, human beings. That's like the point of yeah, the it's franchise. It's a statement about humanity. <laughs> so is the Hulk. He's just been irradiated. And sometimes he big. As, but, yeah. But if you look at the Hulk's skull morphology, it looks very different from other anatomically modern humans. When the attorneys for Marvel made their arguments, they didn't talk about comics or movies or TV shows. They talked about morphology and the action figures themselves. They argued that Beast is not human because he has blue skin, and humans do not have blue skin. This is wild. Mm -hmm. True. But this has nothing of Beast's parentage, his intellectual abilities, his behaviors, or his genetic makeup, or his portrayal by Nicholas Holt, who is a celestial being. (laughs) Yeah, Beast is great. I like Beast. He's a nerd. He's a sensitive boy. By using only the action figure, the attorneys have a limited data set that is missing a lot of important information about the character. Yes, Wolverine has claws, but you can't tell they are implants from the action figure. You have to know the lore. If we watch an X-Men... <laughs> yeah, the singular of X-Men video is X-Men video. <laughs> if we You're watch an, an old. If we watch an X-Men video, we can discover much more about the way these creatures engaged and interacted and what their behavior is like. But if I hand you Beast and Wolverine action figures and ask you if they are the same species, you may very well say no. 
because based on the data in front of you, you have to make an educated guess. Over time, I could hand you more X-Men. I could tell you several of them were found together in Professor Professor Charles Xavier's school. That would give you a nice range of morphology to compare, like the first family Don Johansson discovered just a year after he found Lucy. That is new data, which might change how you interpret your figurines. And for context, the first family is a, a series of remains of several other um, hominins right mm-hmm. around where Lucy was found. So, yeah, so a lot more context. My, But my students will know, having seen X-Men videos, that these are all humans with some sort of mutation. X-Factor. Some, some sort. <laughs> In the same way that a woman with red hair has some different alleles than a woman <laughs> with brown hair. Alleles. <laughs> alleles. 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 Yes. Alleles, okay. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps by forcing a student to limit his or her interpretations to action figures, the student will see how difficult this is and why I don't give them straightforward answers about the hominid family tree. Yeah. So without knowing the background, if you're just looking at two physical specimens and you're asking questions about how or if they're related to one another, you may not know until you get more context. But I think that's a really neat way to think about not only teaching hominid biology, but a cool way to think about pop culture's interaction with biological anthropology, kind of a, a feedback loop that draws on visual elements from the fossil record. And so we'll have a link to an illustration done by an artist, not I, not, not a Marvel artist. No, a I scientific think, illustrator. A fan, yeah. And a fan of the Marvel universe um, that kind of dissects the Hulk Um, from musculature down to skeleton. It's really cool. Yeah. So all of this is just a really cool way to think about this stuff. I found this, like I was Googling and I was like, anthropology of the Hulk. (laughs) And Google was like, what are you doing? (laughs) Um, And with that, we will wrap up this episode. Thank you again, Kate, for the topic. It was much needed. This was a very cool one to research, and there's so, 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 so much more we didn't cover. So perhaps we can revisit more aspects of human bodies and aesthetics in the future. Yeah. So one of the things that was suggested was uh, one of the very first strongmen, Eugene Sandow, and then the woman who outstronged him, Katie Sandwina. Uh, that's a fabulous story. Uh, if, you, if you're interested, listeners, look into it. Um, I love that. But there will be more in the future. So thanks for listening. We will be back next week with another episode, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And hey, just a note here, if you support us at any level from $1 a month upward on Patreon, you get a newsletter every month that tells you what episodes are on deck. Yeah. So if you and if you like stuff. to know in advance. We see yeah, other stuff in there. We do. We're, we're up to some stuff and uh, we, we tell you about it in the newsletter. So there's that. You can find all of those episodes and our back episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And hey, check out some of the other shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network, too. Yeah. And so we're also on social media from time to time, most of the time. Um, yeah. On Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. Mm-hmm. And all that, plus our archive of episodes, our sweet, sweet merch, our syllabus for educators, and more is at our website, thedirtpod.com. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You can also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.